please open with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 3. Last Sunday, we covered really the first half of this chapter. I'll review a little bit of that, and then we will try to finish the chapter today. So follow along as I read all of Acts chapter 3. This is verses 1 through 26, and this is the Word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And that is the word of the Lord. If you remember from last Sunday, if you were here, 
Uh, they are in the temple, the first century temple in Jerusalem that was later destroyed in AD 70, but this is just before that, a few decades before that. And we discussed this man who had been unable to walk for 40 plus years. We're told in chapter 4, he was born this way, unable to walk. And so, no doubt for decades, he had been here asking alms, asking for any kind of financial support to help him survive here in the city of Jerusalem. An interesting point is how frequently the temple is mentioned in the first ten verses. I did not mention this last Sunday. I'll just tick through them. Verse 1, they were going up to the temple. Verse 2, he was at the gate of the temple, called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. That's three mentions. Verse 3, Peter and John were about to go into the temple. That's the fourth mention. Verse 8, he entered the temple. And then verse 10, they recognized him as the one who sat at the temple asking for alms. It's just a curiosity. Why mention the word temple so many times? And it's people debate back and forth, but at the very least, it seems to me that this man is outside of the temple. And then his healing occurs, he's able to enter into the temple. But what you're seeing is God is moving outside the confines of the temple when he does this healing. This man is actually outside the gates. He's not, inside, he's not allowed to go in, uh, very likely, because of how he was in his condition. And yet, once he is healed, he's able to have access and he enters in. And this has some kind of symbolic value, I am sure, uh, with the idea that uh, through Christ, we can enter into God's actual presence, and his presence is not confined any longer to a building in one part of the world, but is now available to all of us by His Spirit. Look with me now at uh, toward the end of last week's text. Look at verse 13. Peter says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Does that sound familiar to you? Because Jesus also references this from the Old Testament. Do you remember? This comes from the burning bush. Remember? Who are you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This allusion back to the burning bush into the Exodus I don't think is any accident because look with me down at verse 22. Here we have Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet, what? Like me. From your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. That comes from Deuteronomy 18. So, How is Jesus a prophet like Moses? What's going on there? Well, if you remember, when we went through Exodus, the people had been languishing in their slavery for 400 years, and they were weary, they were exhausted, they were miserable, and it says that the groanings of the people of Israel went up to heaven, and it says God knew and He saw and then He sent Moses. So, these references back to the Exodus event should remind us, are we ourselves, by nature and by birth, born under the whip of the true and worse Pharaoh, Satan himself? Yes. And we are languishing away in our sin, in our misery. We are born, Romans 6 says, we are slaves of sin by birth. We're either a slave of sin or we're a slave of Christ one or the other, and we are born enslaved to sin, which means no matter what you do to try to fix your life apart from Jesus, you're simply trading one idol for another, 
one sin for another. You can move things around, but you can't actually get free because you can only trade one slave master for another sinful slave master until we find the Lord Jesus. And He, the true and better Moses, has come to deliver us from bondage, from slavery to sin, and to redeem us so that we can be ransomed by the blood of the Lamb and delivered. And you will see this theme about Moses running through the book of Acts as we continue to look through it over the next few months. What are some other things that we learn about Jesus in our text today? Well, look with me, secondly, at the end of verse 13. This one's a little more subtle. It says that the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus. He glorified His servant Jesus. And a couple words there are important. Everybody knows Isaiah 53, or we, you're probably familiar with Isaiah 53. And you may also remember Isaiah 53 doesn't actually start at Isaiah 53. It starts, what we know of really starts at Isaiah 52. And just before, l- listen to what it says. Behold, my servant, same word from our Acts passage, God glorified His servant, Jesus. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Same word here for glorified. So, do you see here? The word servant and the word glorified, which Peter uses here about Jesus, he glorified his servant, he exalted his servant Jesus, are the same words that come from Isaiah 52, 13, the suffering servant shall be exalted, glorified, and he shall be God's servant. And we're also told later in Isaiah 53 that, his, that he is the righteous one, my servant. So, Peter is clearly pointing backwards, and he's saying the suffering servant of Isaiah's message is the Lord Jesus. And not only did he suffer and die in the place of sinners, also remember Isaiah says he was buried in a rich person's grave, a borrowed tomb, think Joseph of Arimathea, but then Jesus is raised to new life, and he's exalted to God's right hand. And Peter says, yeah, that servant who's glorified, who's righteous, that is the Lord Jesus. And and look also at verse 14. What else do we learn here about the Lord Jesus? He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." The Lord Jesus is holy. The Lord Jesus is righteous. He was sinless, and yet they asked for a murderer to be granted to them, and they had the author of life put to death. My goodness. One of the things Luke wants to do throughout both Luke and Acts is to prove that Christianity is not based on the teachings of a law-breaking citizen, and that the founders of Christianity are not themselves lawless. And so, he keeps emphasizing throughout his gospel and acts the innocence of the major characters. You'll see this later in Paul's trials when he stands before Agrippa and Felix and Festus. Paul's clear innocence is there for all to see. Um, Christianity always gets a reputation in parts of the world throughout time of being rebellious, people who turn things upside down, who flip things out of order, who break laws, who upset the order. And Luke is going out of his way to say, well, that's actually not the case. 
Jesus was not a lawbreaker. In fact, even Pilate, who had the power to release him, was ready to release him. But it's because of what you guys said that Pilate decided that he had no alternative, politically speaking. Uh, he could have, of course, released Jesus. It would have cost him politically. He didn't want to do that. So he has Jesus handed over and then tries to wash his hands of it. And then Luke includes, remember, the soldier who said, surely this man was innocent when Jesus dies on the cross. So throughout Luke and Acts, you will notice that Luke is highlighting the fact that Christians and Christ are not about breaking the law or overturning the laws unless the laws are clearly uh, against Christ Himself. And so that's, a, that's an emphasis throughout. So Jesus is the righteous one, and He was innocent. Look at verse 15. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who has kept you alive up to this very moment. He has given you every breath. In Him you live and move and have your being. The reason why you are alive right now is because of the grace of Jesus personally given to you in your life, and none of it is deserved. He's the author of life. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is the one who's given us life. He's the author of life, and yet the crowds say, crucify, crucify Him. They ask for Him to be killed, and um, they ask for a murderer to be released instead. Now, maybe you say, okay, but that's them. That's not me. I don't think I would have said crucify Him. That seems quite… I just can't see myself doing that. Well, think about this. Every time that I choose sin in my life, I am preferring my will over Christ, and in that moment, I am asking for my way over Him, which is, in effect, asking for Him to be handed over. It's, affecting, it's effectively saying, my will, not your will, uh, be done. And that's what we do when we sin. So, let me just ask you here, what is Peter doing in this sermon? I'm going to give you sort of four four points to check through as we walk through this, and they, they all start with the letter R. How about that? So, number one, uh, he wants there to be recognition. Number two, he wants there to be repentance. Number three, he wants there to be refreshment. And number four, restoration. So, recognition, repentance, refreshment, and restoration. So, right now, he wants us to recognize who the Lord Jesus actually is. In order to be a Christian at all, we have to not just understand who we are, we have to also understand who the Lord Jesus is. In church history, uh, many of the greatest heresies, Greg just mentioned some of the false teachings, many of the great heresies of the church were about the character and nature of Jesus Himself. The very earliest ones were about who is Jesus? Is He truly God? Is He truly man? Is He half one, half the other? Is He some mixture? Is He a great creation of God but not truly God, as many cults will teach and proclaim? And so we must have a recognition, a true understanding of who Jesus is, and that's what Peter is telling us here in these verses in front of us. Okay, we also must recognize our, our sin involved here, which we've begun to touch on, but let's look more specifically here. Look at verse 17 with me. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, 
he thus fulfilled. Now, let me just stop there for a second. This idea of you acted in ignorance. Some people think, I think this is true. Peter knows what he's saying is incredibly intense. He's telling a large group of several thousand people that they are personally responsible for the crucifixion of God's Messiah. That is the most offensive thing you could have ever said to anyone, especially to a group of Jews who were, they thought, anticipating the Messiah, to then say that you had Him crucified when the Roman official was trying to release Him, and you asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be released in the place of the Messiah. That is the most inflammatory, the most incendiary kind of thing you could ever say. And Peter knows that. And so he says, listen, he acknowledges that there was a degree of ignorance in the crowd's decision. Now, ignorance does not equal sinlessness. I want that to be very clear. Ignorance of the law is not an automatic excuse, but it does soften the blow, I think, a little bit. You can think of Jesus' words in Luke's gospel. You know what I'm going to say from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus mentions their ignorance. Let me take you to one that we sometimes look at. Turn to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this is one of Paul's last letters. 1 Timothy chapter 1. You'll remember here Paul tells his own testimony in this text. There's a part of this testimony that has always puzzled me. Look with me at verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted, there's our word, ignorantly, in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the worst, the chief. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul is not for one second saying, God saved me, and I was really innocent because I didn't really know what I was doing when I persecuted the church. Paul is clearly sinful. He says, I was the worst sinner. Paul knows he is worthy of God's great judgment and righteous wrath because of the way in which he killed Christians. Paul's not saying that was not horribly evil. He calls himself the foremost sinner. But look again at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul is saying that he did not have an accurate understanding fully of who Christ was. Uh, He was not sinning. It wasn't as though Paul knew for sure Jesus was the Messiah and he sinned against Him anyway. There was a kind of ignorance attached to Paul. He'll say later in Acts, it's a fascinating verse, Paul tells uh, one of the leaders, he says, I was, when he was Saul of Tarsus killing Christians, he said, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. Now, just think about that statement. I was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing Jesus. In other words, 
he, from his perspective, thought Jesus was an imposter, a false Messiah, and so he thought his attack on Christ and Christians was actually advancing the cause of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. But he found out that he actually was persecuting that very God. You know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so, there was, a, there was a degree of real ignorance in Paul, which did not make it innocent, but it did at least open this door of mercy where he was able to still be rescued. Turn with me to the right, a few more books, to Hebrews chapter 10. We, we went through Hebrews 10, or we went through Hebrews this summer. I think most of that is online with, with uh, various uh, individuals here helped us teach. And if you look at Hebrews 10, here's sort of the opposite kind of, of sin here. This is the kind of sin that has no ignorance connected to it at all. And this is a very sobering text. I don't read it lightly at all. Look with me here at Hebrews 10, and I, I want you to hear the positive side and the negative side. So, read a lot of Scripture today. Just prepare for that. Uh, he- Hebrews 10 verse 19. Here's the positive side. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Now, you see the positive side. By Christ's blood, we are cleansed in our conscience, purified, and we can enter boldly into God's presence. Now, here's the negative side for those who don't persevere and who knowingly reject Jesus. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God." Now, this is an extremely sober thought, but I will tell it to you because I think it is true. Someone who has never heard the gospel and who dies in their sin are not going to get a get-out-free card because they hadn't heard the gospel. They will not be judged because they haven't heard the gospel. They will be judged by their God-given conscience. Romans 1 and 2 tells us that the law of God is written on their heart, and they know basics of morality and basics of right and wrong. And they know that backstabbing a friend or lying about something or cheating or stealing, they just know intuitively that's not the way I'm supposed to be. And God will judge those who've never heard the gospel. He's not going to judge them for not hearing what they had no chance to hear. He will judge anyone who's never heard the gospel based on what they did know, which is general revelation in the heavens 
that we can, we can look at a piece of artwork and infer that there's an artist, even if we've never met the artist, we know that there's an artist. You can look at a chair and infer that someone designed it. How much more can we look at ourselves in the mirror and know that we're not the product of random chance and random mutation and natural selection and those kinds of things, that God designed us? We can know that. And we can know that there's a Creator, and we can also know something of His law because it's written on our conscience. And God will judge us based on those things. And even if I've never heard the gospel, if I've sinned against conscience and not uh, acknowledged God's revelation in nature, I will be judged by failing in those areas in which I did have knowledge. Do you see that? You can go read Romans 1 and 2 for more on that. But here's where it gets really serious. The far more intense, the far more dramatic judgment is for those who have heard, who know the gospel intimately, perhaps have grown up in a household where the gospel is talked about on a weekly basis, who've grown up in a gospel-preaching church, wherever it may be, and then later in life have hardened in his or her heart to the gospel, have slowly drifted away from the gospel have embraced other kinds of thinking or other ways of living and have just sort of slowly made a shipwreck of their faith, those, there is no ignorance appeal. At that point, we are deliberately sinning against the clear knowledge of the truth, and at that point, the judgment that will come is severe. And Paul and the, here the author of Hebrews gives a strong warning about that. Now, turn, turn with me back to Acts chapter 3. As you turn there, I want to mention one other text that you don't have to turn to at this moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, none of the rulers of this age understood this, that they were crucifying the Messiah, for if they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. So there, there was an element of ignorance involved, but ignorance was not an excuse and that we will still be judged based on what we know. Now, look with me back here at verse 19. Paul says we need to recognize who… Or excuse me, Peter says we must recognize who Jesus is, we must recognize our sin, and next, we must repent. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Also, look down at verse 26. This is Acts 3.26, God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first, that's the Jewish people, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty, and we talk a lot about human responsibility, and I promise you it's not just because I'm personally obsessed with the issue, it's because the Bible is pretty obsessed with this issue. It comes up all over the place, and you see again, is there a command for the crowd to turn to Jesus? Yes. And then what does he say in verse 26? God raised up His servant Jesus. He sent Him to you to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. So, who does the turning? Do we do it or does the Lord do it within us? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. So, we, we must command all people everywhere to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. It's a universal command for all human beings. We must turn and we must believe in anyone who turns from sin. And in fact, I'll say everyone, every single person who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus, they will be saved. They, they will be saved. 
And yet verse 26 tells us behind the scenes, every time a sinner turns from sin to Jesus, the Lord Jesus was at work turning that heart to Himself. Let me just read it one more time, verse 26. God, having raised up His servant, that's Jesus, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so, ultimately, we must thank the Lord for that desire to turn within us. Let me read a brief story from R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul says this, years ago, I went with two elders of my church to an apartment in Cincinnati while I was working with Evangelism Explosion. Now, for some of you, that will ring a bell. For some of you, maybe not. But if you remember, I think it was in the maybe 80s, 90s, Evangelism Explosion was, was pretty big. Uh, D. James Kennedy, I believe, was the one who wrote that up. And it was kind of a, a good way to do evangelism locally. It was sort of door-to-door evangelism. You'd knock on the door, and you would go through a series of questions, and you would share the gospel with people that perhaps you'd never even met before. And here's one of his stories. So he knocks on this door of an apartment in Cincinnati, and a woman invited us in, the three of them. One of the elders began to tell her the gospel, but she stopped him in mid-sentence and said, I've heard that a thousand times, so please don't waste my time or yours. R.C. Sproul says, I interrupted her, and I said, I don't deny that you have heard this before, but could, I possi- but, but could it possibly hurt you to hear it one more time? She acqui- acquiesced. So I picked up where the elder had left off, and I finished the gospel presentation. I did not ask her to make a response. I didn't do anything. I just thanked her for letting me finish and for being polite enough to let us in her house, and we left. Six months later, she appeared in the new members class at my church. She recounted our visit to her apartment and then said, as soon as those men walked out the door, I went to my bedroom and fell apart. I flooded the room with my tears because for the first time, I really got it, and my sins were forgiven. She had heard the gospel, but she had not truly known it. She had never been brought to repentance and experienced the erasing of her sins. And then Sproul says, many go faithfully to church or a Bible study, and they hear the message. But it has never been embedded in their soul. There is a price for forgiveness. For forgiveness, We have to lay ourselves bare before God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then comes the promise of forgiveness. So, I just want to ask, would you consider yourself in that woman's position? I don't know everyone here. I don't know everyone's heart here. Would you consider yourself in that position where you, you could give lip service to the gospel? You could articulate the gospel with perhaps clarity, but when it comes to real repentance, a real transformation of heart, has that happened for you personally? I'm not asking, has it happened to your brother or sister, your parents, your roommate? It's not, not, not what I'm asking. Has that happened for you personally? Have you come to a point where you not just recognized who Jesus was and recognized your sin, but you actually hated your sin, you turned from your sin, and you trusted in Jesus? If you do that, here is what happens next. And this is one of my favorite parts of this. Oh, there's a lot of great parts in this chapter, but this part I love. Look with me again at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let me read that again. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Several commentators mention this. I assume it is true, although I am no expert in ancient papyrus, but this is what I am told. I'm told this, that, that apparently with ancient papyrus, which is what they would have written on to write a letter uh, or even to write Acts, you might have also used animal skin, but whatever it might be, the ink apparently in those days did not have the same kind of uh, acids that modern ink does. And so when you would write on ancient papyrus or on ancient animal skin, uh, the ink would just sit on top of the papyrus. It would not bite in. It would not be absorbed in in the same way as perhaps modern ink would. And so a person could take some kind of uh, wet cloth or something like that, and they could begin to sort of move it across the papyrus. And over time, you could see the ink start to almost melt off the page. And over enough time, if it hadn't been there for too long, you could just get rid of it and you could start over. And you could actually find ancient papyrus that had been erased like that. They They would actually cut off the letters. And sometimes you can still sort of see it, but you can usually cut them off. And then people would write back over it and reuse it, like a, a reusable expo board or something like that. That's what would happen. And this is just a beautiful picture. When you repent and turn back to the Lord, He will blot your sins out. So, um, imagine all your sins. I mean, we, we can't remember a fraction of our sins, but just think in your mind of sins that you have personally committed. If you can't think of any Stay after the service, we will have a conversation, okay, because this, be, this should not be too hard. But think back and think about sins that you have committed in your life. I'm talking sins maybe a lot of people don't even know about. Think about your worst sins. Think about your habitual sins. Think about more subtle sins. Just think about sin in your life. And imagine that you had this, this giant expo board or some kind of giant writing here, and it was all written out. All your sins are recorded there for all to see. Just imagine for a second if your sins personally, if I just had a sheet right here, and I could just read them off. Say, I just named you, and I just started reading through all your sins. Imagine the feeling of horror, the feeling of shame, the feeling of I want to run out of this room and never go back and ever see those people again in my life. That feeling, if I could just list them all off right now. Now, imagine having to stand before other people and face your sin, just all of it out there, just 100% visible public, everyone's looking. Now, now, Imagine standing before your Creator. You got the books. Remember in Revelation 20, the books, plural, with every deed you've ever committed? Jesus said in Matthew, I think it's chapter 12, that you'll have to give an account, not just for your worst sins, you'll have to give an account for every careless word. Every careless word. Just imagine this seemingly endless list of everything that you have done wrong. Think about the horror of that being known. Think of the horror of facing God on judgment day. I mean, I know there's a lot going on in our world today, and it is so easy to get caught up in all the news and what's going on, and I'm not saying that those things don't matter. I'm just saying they don't matter nearly as much as this moment. Whatever's going on in our world, whatever's going on even politically in our world right now, I'm not saying those things do not matter, that we should not think about those things, that those things should not factor into our life, and that we should not think biblically and reasonably and rationally about those things. We should and we must. But far more important than this endless news cycle that we can never seem to get out of these days, far more important when that fog goes away is the fact that you will have a personal appointment to meet the living God. And on that day, you will stand before Him. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus, you will be 
completely exposed, and all your sins there. It's like Adam and Eve trying to find fig leaves to cover themselves. This is a vain and futile attempt when you have to face God. Shifting the blame will not work. And on that day, you will want more than anything else. You, you won't, by the way, you won't care about the 2020 election on that day. It will mean absolutely nothing to you on that day. When you're standing before the God of the universe and all your evil deeds are there, and here's the offer on the table that is free. This is scandalous. A free offer on the table. God will erase the board. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That word, the Greek word, let me tell you how else this is used in the New Testament. He will wipe away every tear. Same word. He'll wipe away every tear from their faces. Listen to this use of the same word in the New Testament. Listen to this same word. I'll tell you where it comes. And you... You were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling, same word, wiping away, blotting out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So instead of you being ashamed… Satan and his principalities are ashamed. Why? Because that record of your debts that's blotted out, it's, it's taken away, it's removed from you as far as the east is from the west. How is that possible? Did Jesus have the crime against Him nailed above His head in three languages? Here is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That was His crime. Well, imagine this. All your sin, this is the offer, all your sin taken away from you, nailed above the head of the Son of God. He takes the blame for everything wrong you've ever did. He takes the shame for everything wrong you ever did, and you get your sins blotted out. Let me show you where this this word is used in the Greek Old Testament. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Listen to these two verses. These are just wonderful. You don't have to turn there. This is Isaiah 43 and 44, but listen to this. The Lord says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So God gets glorified for His own sake by showing the greatness of His costly grace by blotting out your record of sins. Here's the other one. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like the mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, like, like a mist. Imagine you wake up, and there's, there's kind of a mist in the cool of the morning. It's hard to even see. Imagine that's your sin. And about two hours later, where's that mist on a hot, sunny day? That mist is gone. You can't go find it because it's gone. You, you can't track it down. It didn't move away. It's gone. Your sin is like that mist or that dark cloud, and God just blows it away. He just takes it away. He blots out your sins because Jesus took them for us. If that is not good enough, look with me here, Acts 3. Let me read 19 and 20 again. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which the holy prophets spoke long ago. So, my third point is refreshment. Let me read you a story from one theologian. Follow with me here for just a moment. This is about that word refreshment. I love this illustration. I remember a hot walk in the Scottish Highlands. We climbed the third and fourth highest mountains in the British Isles on a cloudless and windless day, and we were walking at a good pace too. For the last few miles back down the path, we fantasized about how it would be when we got back to the camp. There would be water to wash in, a stream where we could cool down our feet after we'd taken off our boots. There would be tea and food, but most of all, we wanted something cold to drink. We'd long since run out of water, the water that we'd brought with us. Only a few more miles to go. And then, what was this? A Land Rover was coming up the tracks toward us. It was one of the camp staff. He said, I reckoned you'd be hotter than you thought you were going to be today. So he pulled out a couple of crates and brought it to us. We stared in amazement, and then gratefully, we got into the various drinks that he had brought. It tasted good, good as it only tastes when you are tired and dry. This sentence I loved. He said, it was still good to get back to the camp, but the refreshment had come to meet us before we even finished the walk. Read that again. It was still good to get back to the camp, but the refreshment had come to meet us before we even finished our walk. If you know the Lord Jesus, we are not yet in the new creation. We're not yet in the resurrection. But this is the incredible thing. You know, th this life, many of you could talk about this, the suffering, the weariness. I mean, I, I don't know, but my, my guess is that, that there are struggles in this room that I don't even have any idea about where you're saying, this has been maybe the hardest year of my life, or this has been the hardest month of my life, or the hardest whatever it may be. And it's wearying. It's exhausting. There are times you just want to give up on certain things. You're like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm sick of trying to do this. I, I feel like I'm just exhausted. And we're not in the new creation yet, but just picture this. God, through His Holy Spirit, takes some of the refreshments of that later day and drives them from the future into the present. And you, maybe when we're singing in the next song, maybe as we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, maybe even as I'm preaching right now, the Holy Spirit brings from the future into your present some of those refreshments of God's soothing and peace-giving presence. And that, you know, that, that, I'm sure you've been there. You're exhausted. You're out of energy. You haven't been sleeping well. Work is not going well. Family stuff might not be going well. And you're just about to just tap out. You're just, I'm done. And you go get alone. You've been here recently, maybe. You open your Bible up. This was me just like a week ago. I was just hit this moment. You open your Bible up and you just feel like, I'm done. And you just pour out your nothingness, your emptiness, your weariness before the Lord. And you start reading the Psalms or you start reading whatever you want to read. And the Lord meets with you. And what happens? He restores your soul. He leads you by still waters. He gives you what you need to get through that next day. Those are the refreshments. Those are those moments where you get a little taste of the future right here and now. And when we are together corporately, that is what this is about. And the Lord's table, as we're about to get to, is a moment of real refreshment where we think about what we've done, what Christ has done, and how much we need Him.
But just before we get there, let me get to my last point. Restoration. Verse 20, that times of refreshment may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouths of His holy prophets long ago. Now, there's a big debate as to what all this is referring to, but whatever your eschatology might be, I think we can all agree that the ultimate point that this is pointing to is the new creation and the resurrection of the dead. And that is what we have to look forward to. That is what we have to fix our eyes on. So, here in this weary world, this 40 years of wilderness, as we anticipate the land flowing with milk and honey, we have little moments of refreshment that remind us of what is to come. And just turn with me to the right to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And here, here's a little, another way of saying some of these same, same truths. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, that's that future restoration, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, or literally the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, you see there? We have a future inheritance, the restoration of the whole world. And as we wait and anticipate that, right now we have the experience of the Holy Spirit who is the down payment. He's the guarantee of that future inheritance. And even here, He is the comforter, the encourager, the one who comes alongside and consoles us and lifts up our weariness and our, our drooping hands and our weariness and gives us strength again and again. So, again, as we come here to the Lord's table, this table is for those who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ. It is a reminder of Christ's body broken for us, His blood shed for us in the bread and in the cup. And Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, reminded us of these things and said, remember me, remember what I've done as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, we're not trying to be exclusive what we would say is, we would ask you not to partake in these elements, because what you need is not these elements, but what they represent, which is the gospel that we've been talking about today. So, if you're not a believer, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus even now. We would love to talk to you about that, meet with you after the service if you have done that, or if you would like to do that. For those of you who are not walking in unrepentant sin, who have trusted in Christ or not out of fellowship with another believer, we would invite you to come forward with repentance and to return to your seat rejoicing at what Christ has accomplished for us. Please bow and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for moments of refreshment where by Your Spirit You meet with us. God, I pray for anyone in this room who is discouraged or depressed or anxious or weary. 
which is probably a number of us, God, I pray that you would help us to know and to believe that if anyone is weary or heavy laden, that if they will come to the Lord Jesus, they will experience rest and life and restoration. God, I don't know how unbelievers make it through this life without that refreshment from your Spirit. We pray, God, that everyone who has not turned from sin would feel the weariness, the hollowness of life without Christ, and that they would be miserable in their sin, and that they would turn and trust in You. And God, for those who have, I pray even now as we repent, as we confess sin in our own heart, as we partake of these elements, that You would meet with us and refresh our heart so that we can enter another week and be a light in darkness and not overcome by the temptations of this world. So, God, please be at work right now and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.